once again, I've got a bit of a challenge this morning. Uh, the main challenge is, it's not always easy to preach the week after David Bedford. When everybody throughout the week is going, cool, wasn't David Bedford good on Sunday? Cool, isn't David Bedford good? Well, you're right, he is. And the reason I raised that is, whilst it was in the notice sheet last week, we didn't remind everybody that David Bedford is the person who is leading our church away weekend next year. And he'll be even better at that, because that's his style, as you gather, as he was presenting last week. So, if you haven't yet said you're coming, um, perhaps you might need to have a word with me at the moment, um, because there are no other, no forms out at the moment, and um, it is actually Jeremy Camplin who is heading up our group, who's looking after the church away weekend. So, if you want to hear David Bedford again, you want to have a time away with a fellowship, well, that's what you need to do. Secondly, if you've... uh, If you're on the ball, you will have noticed that the notices on the screen and the notice that you've got here were slightly different this morning. Uh, On the screen, it says Graham Camplin is uh, uh, preaching next Sunday morning, and in your notice sheet here, it says it will be Samuel. Well, Samuel was going to join us from Romans 111 Trust. Um, He is, at the moment, has not been able to get a visa to come over here. Um, in the church at the moment, the wider church, that is a major problem. We're finding that you can't get people to come over to preach or be involved in the life of the church to get visas with all the, the threats of radicalisation and that, as far as the government are concerned, it's difficult to, um, for people to get visas to come. So we're still not sure whether Samuel will be here next Sunday and um, Graham Camplin is ready uh, to either step back at the last moment or step forward at the last moment and we thank Graham for that so you can come next Sunday morning and see the results well we're back on Corinthians this morning and we move into the section in Paul's letter where he concentrates on public worship and the first thing we need to hit bear in mind is that in the early church, in the Corinthian church and the rest of the early church, public worship was not gathering in a building like this. It wasn't gathering in a, in a, in a big building. It, it was more of an informal worship in an informal way in people's homes or buildings like that. And as we move into Corinthians chapter 11 through 11 to 14, it covers the various aspects of Worship. And chapter 11 gets off to a really good start. Verse 2, Paul says to them, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teaching just as I've passed them on to you. Well done, Paul. He thinks everything is going just right. Then we get to verse 17, and we're in the passage that we're on this morning about the Lord's Supper. It's a little bit different. In the following directive, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. I wonder what he'd say to us. Your meetings do more harm than good. Well, you can think on that um, as we go through this this morning. This matter clearly touched Paul on the raw. The Corinthian Christians were making a mockery of the Eucharist and of the agape. So incensed was Paul with the results that he was 
getting about this. He wrote bluntly, when you meet together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. These were people who had become Christians, who were excited about being Christians, who were meeting together, and this was what was now happening. The divisions in the church had reached major proportions, not just personality cults, not just differences of emphasis over food offered to idols, not head covering for women, although they're all mentioned. There were hints here of a rather obnoxious kind of snobbishness between rich and not so rich. In verses 20 to 21 that comes out. And when the Lord's Supper was celebrated in the early church, we need to realise again it included a fellowship meal, a feast meal, then followed by the celebration of the sacraments. It appears that the whole thing became a big bum fight. Everybody was pushing and shoving, not waiting for everybody else, getting in, making sure they got what they wanted. Paul was not naive enough to think that there wouldn't be differences of opinion in the church and we don't need to be naive to take that line today. There will be differences amongst people. But we need to be one in the Lord as we gather around the table. And, and do we feel that? Do we feel that we are one family? It's a very serious thing to come to the communion table with an unprepared heart. It's also a serious thing to receive the Lord's Supper in a careless manner. Most of you will know that I'm, I'm quite relaxed in worship. But for communion, I feel things should be done properly and orderly. In a reverent manner. From the preparation of the table before most of us are even here, through to the clearing away afterwards. This is the Lord's table. And we've come to be part of it this morning. Now because the Corinthians had been sinning in their observance of the Lord's Supper, Paul says God has disciplined them. 1 Corinthians 11.30 That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep term there, fallen asleep, means actually have died. Now we've got to be careful here. This isn't saying that if you have an illness, it must be punishment because you've sinned. But the way the Corinthians were living, Paul believes this was bringing these results. If they had a more supportive, wholesome manner in their community, things would not have happened in this way, Paul says. Are we falling asleep in our worship? Are we dead in our observance of the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity for spiritual growth and blessing if we approach it in the right attitude. What then must we do if the supper is to bring blessing and, and not discipline, as Paul says? We do not want to underestimate the Lord's Supper. Scripture makes it clear we must never downplay the importance of this meal. We must never eat 
and drink without giving a thought to what we are doing. The Lord's table should contain what is required for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Hence, I just moved my book off the table because it should not be there. Back in chapter 10, verse 16, Paul says, Is it not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks in participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? We participate in Christ when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And of course, at the same time, we also do, don't want to overestimate the importance of the Lord's Supper either. For the bread and wine are symbols of the body of Christ. And so in our reading this morning, we come to some verses that we hear, we have heard hundreds of times. And perhaps we've not realised the context in which they're written. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Verse 23. Then Paul proceeds to mention things that are not exactly as found in the Gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper. Did he make them up? Are they the product of an overactive imagination? Notice how Paul introduces what he says about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. What Paul passed on to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper is what he personally received from the Lord himself. In other words, Paul claims inspiration. Paul claims, as he does elsewhere, that that scripture is God-breathed. To properly observe Lord's Supper, we need to look in five directions, and I need to go through them very quickly this morning. First of all, we need to look back. The broken bread reminds us of Christ's body given for us, and the cup reminds us of the shed blood, spilt, spilt, shed for each one of us. And it's a remarkable thing that Jesus wants his followers, you and me, to remember his death. Why? Well, because everything we have as Christians centres on that death. We must remember that he died because this is part of the gospel message. Corinthians 15, he says, Christ died and was buried. It's not the life of the Lord or his teachings which will save sinners, but his death. And therefore, we remember why he died. Christ died for our sins. He was our substitute. We're forgiven because of that death. And we should remember that he died willingly, meekly, showing his great love, as Paul says in Romans. He gave his body into the hands of wicked men and he bore his body, uh, bore on his body the sins of the world. However, this remembering is not simply recalling historical facts. It's a participation of spiritual realities. At the Lord's table, we don't walk around a monument and admire it. We have fellowship with the living Saviour as we join together around the table. So we look back, we look ahead. Paul tells us that we eat the bread and drink the cup until he comes. 
we remember that the Lord's Supper is temporary for this life here on earth. And we're commanded to celebrate it, but only until Jesus comes again. But we can say more as we look to Revelations. At that time, we'll move on to another supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that supper we shall sit with Jesus himself and sup with Jesus in a way we can't do today. At that time we shall behold him face to face and rejoice in the glory of his appearing. So this morning, as we gather at the table, we look forward to that time. Thirdly, the properly observed Lord's Supper, we need to look within. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup, Paul says. We need to note very clearly that Paul doesn't say that we need to be worthy to partake, but only that we should partake in a worthy manner. None of us are worthy, but we need to partake in a worthy manner. And if we're to do that, we must examine our own hearts, and only we can do that. Judge our sins, confess them to the Lord. To come to the Lord's table with unconfessed sins in our life is to be guilty of Christ's body and blood. For it was our sin that nailed him to that cross. The Corinthian Christians neglected to examine themselves, but they were experts at examining everybody else. Perhaps we're all a little bit guilty of that. When the church gathers together, we must be careful not to become religious detectives, to watch others, but also fail to acknowledge our own sin. And if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And that's not to be taken lightly. So where else do we look? Well, we look around. Not look around to check who's here and what they're doing, but in order to discern the Lord's body. We talk about the body of Christ here. We are the body of Christ as a people, so we need to look around. Because there's one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, Paul says, for we all partake of the one loaf. It should be a demonstration of our unity as we gather together around the Lord's table. In the Corinthians church, it was far from that. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. And the Lord of the family desires that his children, you and I, are one and we love one another and care for one another. It's impossible for a true Christian to get closer to the Lord while at the same time he's separated from another believer. How can we remember the Lord's death? if we don't love one another. The Lord's table is open to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have taken him to be their own personal saviour. Everybody is welcome. But if you're not a true believer, therefore you should not take the bread and the wine or if a believer if your heart is not right on a particular Sunday or a particular time then you need to examine whether you should whether I should partake of the bread and wine 
was reading of one church leadership team that every time before they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they went round the room and everybody is asked if they can participate in the Lord's Supper with every other person in that room. They say they want to make sure that every one of the leaders recognises that the church is the body of the Lord, said the pastor. And finally, we look to the front. What do we see when we look to the Lord's table? We see a table. And not just any table, it's the Lord's table. I'm sure you realise that the Reformation brought about many changes in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Mass became the Lord's Supper, kneeling at the rail changed, and sitting at a table became part of the Lord's Supper. All those changes are important, but of a special concern to us today is the table. What do we do at this table this morning? Well, we eat, we drink. We are fed and we are nourished. I suggest when you get back home, you might want to look at 1 Corinthians 11 again. What the Lord gave to Paul is filled with language of eating and drinking. Ten of the verses there are about eating and drinking. Meaning what? Well, meaning that the Lord's table is food for the soul. That by it, God nourishes and refreshes our soul for eternal life with the crucified body and poured out blood of Christ. Let me end on a note of joy. The Lord's Supper is not supposed to be a time of grief, even though we look back at Jesus' death for our sin. Nor is it meant to be a time of mournful confession, though it's important we look inward and confess our sins. The Lord's Supper should be a time of thanksgiving and joyful anticipation of seeing and meeting the Lord within the body of Christ. Think of Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks, even though he was about to suffer and die. So don't fall asleep when we meet around the table. Let's be sure that we're not a dead people. We need to gather in joy and give thanks as we enjoy this celebration together. Amen.